What's up, everybody, and welcome to the One More Jump podcast by Rise Pole Vault. I was super pumped whenever Brennan Robodeau agreed to come on and have a discussion about his upcoming documentary, Born to Fly. Brennan is a documentarian that has been following uh, Mondo Duplantis around for like the last five years, just filming as much as possible in order to put together this really cool documentary, not only just on on Mondo, but from what he says on the podcast, he was talking about how it's maybe more uh, about the pole vault in general too. So there's there's definitely things that are going to be outside of just the Mondo story, but the Mondo story is the big one. That's the thread that's going to be running through the whole documentary. And what I really love about being able to talk to him about this is that he's putting together something that is very important to the pole vaulting community. It's a real film by a real professional documentarian that we don't get that very often in our community. And one of the reasons that I started actually the sole purpose that I started this podcast with my brother, Josh originally was because Whenever I was younger, I wanted to know about the behind the scenes things. I wanted to know what Brad Walker did on a daily basis and, and what uh, Jeff Hartwig you know, does for his training and, and what things make them tick. And we don't have a lot of access to that. And that is why, number one, I started this podcast so that people could see that and, or not see it, but they can listen to it and they could hear how these people talk and, and what their personalities are like and, and what makes them click. And then Brennan is adding another layer to it and he's adding the video to it, which is really, really awesome because people love video. I love video and he's very, very good at filming. And so I'm really, really excited that we were able to get him on so that we could talk about the hardships that he's had during this project. I mean, crazy, crazy time over the last five years. The last five years in the pole vault have been have been in the world, have been crazy. And he started it when Mondo was in high school and rolled the dice on on a kid from Lafayette, Louisiana, Mondo. And now he's been able to film him um, just doing so many crazy things. And, and not only that, but get caught up in this time in history with uh, the pandemic. And then now it has culminated in Mondo uh, getting that gold medal and coming so incredibly close to uh, breaking that world record at the Olympic games, which is really, really uh just really cool that he rolled the dice, Brennan rolled the dice and just was like, I'm going to follow this guy around and put this together and see what happens. And I'm just happy that it worked out for him. Um, But I'm talking too much. Let's get into the podcast. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast with Brennan Robidoux. You got a lot riding on this, man, which I mean, I guess we can, you know, kind of get into, you know, how, how, how does all this start for you, man? Like what, I, I don't even know, like if you've ever pole vaulted, if you, how you even know Mondo or anything. So how's it all start? Uh, sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was 2017. So I live in Lafayette, Louisiana. 
which is the town that Mondo grew up in, in the States. And, um, this dude planned his family, man. Just everyone here knew of them. We didn't really know a lot about them. My parents, I, you know, I'm a bit older than Mondo, but my parents were at uh, LSU at the same time his parents were. So everyone just knew of like this family and the parents are really good athletes. And now they got these kids who are all really good athletes and they're half Swedish and they're half American. And one of them is a pole vaulter or, you know, multiple of them are pole vaulters, but there's one that's really good. And none of us even know what the hell pole vault is, but it's really cool. Cause apparently he's doing really good stuff. And, you know, it's all just like this kind of ephemeral, like no one really knows what's going on. We just know that there's something cool with this family. Um, and so it was after, uh, the world junior record that he did when he first jumped 19 feet, 580, mm-hmm. uh, became like the first high schooler in, you know, in history to do that. And you just, you know, as a documentarian, you're realizing I, I'm always looking for stories and there's one right in front of me right here, like literally in my backyard. Cause at the time I was living with my parents, uh, not to brag. And, yeah. um, you know, literally Mondo was at Lafayette High School, which is my parents' backyard, effectively. So I could walk. I mean, for the first almost two straight years of filming, I just I would put my camera in my little go bag and I'd walk across the street and film them after practice. And yeah. uh, that's how it really started. I kind of just reached out to him and just said I reached out to his dad at first. I wanted to make, uh, you know, uh, this idea of this long term project, maybe just following Mondo to see where I don't even I didn't know where it was going to lead just right he's doing good stuff who knows maybe five ten years from now he'll do something special let's just start documenting it he's right. like well you gotta you gotta ask mondo so he gave me his phone number i texted him he was 17 so he wasn't exactly very talkative and he just said sure <laughs> you know i guess whatever and then i showed up and i don't think either of us realized what we were signing up for but here we are now that's hilarious that you say uh yeah like it was like literally in my backyard and like now like think about back then where it's just like, yeah, like you're, I mean, logistically it's freaking awesome, man. It's right in your backyard. I can go over, he's practicing. Oh, I'll be over there in five minutes, whatever. Now it's like the whole opposite side of the spectrum. Now it's so yeah, it's gotten a lot. It's gotten a lot harder to film. You know, it's like now instead of walking <laughs> across the street, I got to go halfway across the world every single time. You know, oh it's definitely, gosh. it's not, it's not like it used to be. That's for sure. Right. But I mean, how, how crazy and cool is that? I mean, I think it was pretty obvious that, you know, he was pretty special. I mean, I remember, um, seeing him jump back when he was a little kid and, and things like that. And, uh, it was pretty obvious, but I think it's so cool what you're doing because, I mean, he obviously had popped at that point to like, once you get over that 580 threshold, that's like a big jump in a pole for a pole vaulter's career. Um, and, not very many uh, high school vaulters do that, obviously. Uh, yeah. One, um, and and so, but it's so cool that you started at that point because, like, right now, if you were to start it now, it'd be like, oh, cool, you're doing a documentary on the world record holder, like right. that's pretty cool. But you started it way back then, so like, what? Obviously, you knew he was athletic. You knew it was something pretty special. But like, was there something that pushed you towards like, hey, I'm going to roll the dice on this dude and I'm just going to follow him around and invest probably a lot of your money, your time into this project? Was there something special about it? Yeah, desperation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i was living with my parents you know what do you expect i uh, i needed that out i needed something and uh you know i call myself a filmmaker and but i'm searching for stories and 
you know, I'd made a lot of shorts and whatnot. And, and uh, it's just, it's literally what I've done my whole life. But I don't know, something about this kid. And the more I looked into it, the more you kind of start to do the research. And then you realize, hmm, you know, that's, you know, especially coming from someone who's not an athlete or necessarily like has been a big sports fan, you know, knowing the minimal amount of track and field that the average American, maybe slightly above average, but not much of like what an average American would know about track and field. And, but once you start reading into it and looking into it, you think, geez, like how the hell is there not already a documentary about this kid being made? And so maybe I'm crazy. Um, but to me, it was like a no brainer. And I was like, sure, I'll invest my life savings. This is just like, I mean, come on, like, come on. It's a totally calculated risk. Yeah, it's risky, but I mean, you know, if I was to put, if I was a betting man, I certainly like the odds when you start to look into the numbers, you know? Well, and, and you think about like, whenever I think about it, I don't know if you've done much, uh, research into pole vaulting films. Like, uh, usually it's been, it's been like, uh, just a combination of a bunch of cool stuff kind of thrown together. And I loved them. Like the Neo vault series. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, I have a, I have Daniel Ryland's film, which Daniel Ryland's film was really good. Oh man. Um, I literally have the DVD. I was watching Walter's dream. Is that Paul Walter's? Yeah, that's one of them. He had like two. There's a pole vaulter's dream and there's another, but anyway, I, I have started to, you know, delve into those. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's, so there's some like that, but there's a very small amount of history, but I don't know if there's been anything yet where it's been like, Holy cow, the proper story and somebody who obviously has a strong background in film is like merging together in our sport like you know like for me like i talk about like our sport and that is so cool like that will be whenever this project is finished which i don't know how you're gonna find a time whenever it's like okay this thing is finished because he's so young i'm sure you've thought about that but um whenever it is done it's like wow man you i really think that that calculated risk is is weighed heavily in your favor you know so props to you for taking you know taking the the jump the leap pun intended (laughs) i guess uh getting in there um so like what what is your what is your background in film i'm just curious like how how does somebody you know how is you start in high school or you know, it's all I've ever done. I, uh, I mean, truly, it sounds almost cliche, but I literally never did anything else from the moment I was like 14. I was working cameras on like news stations and stuff. And then I was, you know, on a on a lift at the end of the football end zone filming for the, the local stations, the football games. And I was always making films for myself from, you know, the time I was, a, you know, a child. You know, Mondo was pole bowling at seven. I was filming at seven just with whatever home movies and stuff. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of worked all through high school, made a lot of connections in New Orleans, which is, you know, two hours from here. But that's kind of like our big film hub. And just at that time was when the film industry was kind of blowing up in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up, I actually didn't go to college. I just went straight to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did go to college very briefly and I dropped out promptly. So it's easier to say <laughs> I didn't go. Um, but I moved to New Orleans and I, I started working just kind of in the industry, uh, making my own stuff, but working on a ton of other people's films and just, you know, just learning that way. It's a very much, a, it's a trade, you know, people at the time it was radical when I dropped out, you know, everyone's, but nowadays, you know, a lot of people seem to understand that college is not for everyone. And it's a, yeah. it's a trade, you know I mean? It's like being a plumber. You just, you learn on the job. So you can go and you could take all these classes and learn how to be a plumber, but at some point you got to plumb. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, I'm a, I'm a 
teacher. Um, I own, I own uh, a business, but then a pole vaulting uh, gym, but I also uh, am a teacher. And I always say like, dude, I learned more my first year of student teaching than I did the entire four years that I went to mm-hmm. college. And it's just like, wow, it's just pretty crazy. But film, like I think in particular, I actually have have somebody that I, I've been talking to. He's a young man who wants to get into photography and film and stuff like that. And he's like, well, I don't know if I want to go to school and stuff like that. It's a weird time because with the complete access to information that we have now, like you, it's almost like you could put together your own college curriculum by watching a whole bunch of, it sounds weird, but like YouTube videos and finding things online. uh, And you could almost, you know, subsidize that college education by researching stuff, but particularly probably in film. Is that kind of how you've taught yourself? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. Now I have to say it is easy though, especially with that to go down that rabbit hole where then you become obsessed with, you know, gear (laughs) and not the making. So it's kind of like that balance where, yeah, you can teach yourself on YouTube, which is really primarily how I learned. But if you're not making stuff, I mean, it's just, you have to make stuff, even if it's bad, you know? And I still learn that today because I like to only put out stuff that's good. But the reality is if you're not constantly making stuff, even if it's bad stuff, then, you know, you're not really learning. Well, and like, to be honest with you, I think the coolest, um, first of all, your Instagram is probably the best follow I've had in... Uh, since I started Instagram, it's so cool, man. Just like, and especially since you started that uh, thing where you're dropping little clips uh, every day until the Olympic final, it's been so much fun to watch, but you were talking about how it's difficult to, to learn how to film in a classroom. Like you need to Mm -hmm. go out and you need to film and you need to edit and you need to do all of those things. But that is totally the case for filming in pole vault. Like the favorite, my favorite video was the one that you showed us how you filmed <laughs> that six meter practice jump. I was yeah. like, okay, do they teach you that? You know, like, or did you just figure that out? Or did you just like, well, maybe I could do this, you know? Yeah. That was kind of just, that was just straight up experimenting where you think, okay, I have a really long pole and it's probably strong enough to hold a, the camera. Now the camera, you know, I mean, it, it also helps that camera technology has gotten better. So like I say, don't get obsessed with gear, but sometimes the gear is very helpful because it's like, uh-huh. okay, a gimbal is a lot better now than it was five, 10 years ago. And the cameras shoot way higher quality video and they're smaller. So I can mount that on the end of a gimbal. I can mount that on the end of like a six and a half foot pole. Right. And uh, I could do it. I mean, you know, again, look, a normal person or person with the proper budget would just have a jib and a fancier camera and would just have the camera crane, you know, with a crew and make it real nice. But I don't have that. I have a ladder, I have a pole and I got a gimbal and a really good camera that's small. So let me just do it that way. That's crazy. So, uh, what is, hold on. Did you say a gimbal? What, yeah, gimbal is like a, a gimbal is a steady cam, but it's like a new version of it now. So, oh, uh, so like it's to like a make stick? the camera smooth. Yeah, so it's it's like a it's called like a three axis gimbal. So basically, it, it stabilizes a camera in the tilt, the pan, and the rotation axis. So like that's like a lot of stuff nowadays. You'll see people like walking around. They make it they make it for from cell phones to for the biggest Hollywood cameras, you know. So right. mine's somewhere mine's somewhere in between that, you know, in between cell phone and and cinema camera. And you know, it's a gimbal that can hold a whatever a six pound camera. And you put that at the end of the pole, so when you're lifting it up, you're not. Um, you know, it's not like shaky and all that kind of stuff. So it just smooths it out. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I do a lot of trail running and so there's like a lot of people that, uh, run down mountains, you know, with, with the camera and it like is not shaking at all. So yeah, they must, for sure. they must be probably using something maybe similar to that. So, um, what, like, is this, is this like your full-time deal now or like, what, what are you <laughs> no, doing? I mean, what I mean no, doing? I got, I got a mortgage to pay and I got all that. I mean, I'm a commercial director by like trade, you know I mean? That's still how I pay the bills. My wife's a nurse. Um, she's incredible. And she's supported me through this whole thing too. Just like allowing me to travel the world to do this stuff. But how old are you, um, how old are you by the way? Sorry to interrupt. <clears throat> I'm a 26, 26. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So, which is so, the weird, the weird fact is that I was telling, I was talking to Mondo, uh, we were in Sweden, you know, just like three weeks ago before we left. And, um, we were kind of, it was a crazy thought of like, he's now older than I was when we started filming. So I was, oh. I had like just turned 21 or I was 21 and he's now older than I was when we started. Which wow. Is crazy. That yeah, is been, pretty It's crazy. been a long time. Yeah. So yeah. how, how, how has that been with, uh, like having your wife, like, uh, cause I mean, I would imagine you're, you're trying to absorb as much you know, film as possible, like, you know, just so you have a lot to choose from. So, um, are, how, how often are you overseas and, and things like that? So I'm actually leaving for Sweden tomorrow. I think that'll be my fifth time in Sweden. And, wow. you know, I've been to like, I've been to nine other countries. I, I effectively went overseas twice a year during filming, you know, usually for summer and winter, like for the last, you know, four and a half years. Um, and then, and then multiple times traveling, you know, through the States and stuff, but a lot of times for States, you can drive. Like I went to like, uh, you know, Austin, Texas for all of the, those kind of meets and I would just drive there. I've been up to Oxford, Mississippi to film with Sam Kendrick multiple times to drive there. I went to the trials actually, cause you know, part of the film is not just Mondo, but the American side of it. So I went to that, you know, you fly. So I've traveled a lot, but I've also learned how to be really, uh, frugal with the travel. Yeah, man. I'm sure, I'm sure you, uh, you know, you have a budget and things like that. And that's, uh, yeah, that's gotta be pretty crazy. Um, so you had mentioned, um, Sam Kendricks, how about that crazy situation, man? It's devastating. I mean, it's literally devastating. I mean, I can sit here and be like, Oh, you know, he's part of the film and that sucks. But like, I literally cannot fathom, uh, what it's like for him. That's not fun at all. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, part of the film that we, that we, that's kind of discussed is, you know, why Monica beats her sweet. And I, we don't have to get into the whole topic because it's a pretty long discussion in the film, of like what this all ultimately became. But, uh, you know, you learn that obviously for Americans, the Olympics is everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're an American track and field athlete, track and field is an Olympic sport. That's mm -hmm. what you have. So you get the recognition once every four years, people that don't watch track and field at all, they'll tune in and they'll say, you know, what's on, do we have a guy? in it does it, is there an american here and does he have a chance at meddling well in sam kendrick's case the answer would be yes to all of those you know mm -hmm. and not only that but i'm sure that everyone was hyping it up is it was gonna be a big battle between him and mondo so it's brutal man that's brutal for him and yeah, uh you know terrible. he deserves i think he deserves you know that's part of why i want to include him pretty not heavily but he's a definite a main part of the film because it's like i think this dude deserves way more credit than he gets you know mm -hmm. i mean american record holder incredible athlete mondo's easily the biggest rival for mondo so it's like this guy deserves a lot more credit and i was hoping that the olympics would give him that boost so yeah and i mean he he we had him on or i had him on the the podcast and we did a podcast with him and uh it was the first time like long form 
talking to him, like not just in passing. And uh, he is just incredible, like his attitude. And and then that uh, video he had put out afterwards uh, on Instagram, I was just like, dude, how did you keep it together that well? Like, yeah. I'm I mean, sure he's a- throwing fits, you know, by himself in the room. But yeah, I, I mean, he kept it together and he just, he, I don't know. He's just got, he's got a good outlook on life. And, and, uh, it's just really, really sad because, um, you know, not only is he a really good competitor, but he, he also is just like that super, like when you think about American pole vaulting, he's like, uh, in the reserves, you know, like he, he stopped for the national anthem at the 2016, you know, like, it's just like the perfect, you know, just like American pole vaulter, you know, and it, it was just, it was just, uh, really messed up for those of people who are listening, you know, I, can you explain kind of what happened with that for people who may not know? Yeah. I mean, I just know as much as what I've read. Um, but he tested positive, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, they have to test as at least what I know from what Mondo's telling me, they test pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they test these athletes and anyone who's involved coaches and media and all that. And, uh, you know, you had to test obviously positive before and you had to be taking, I mean, had test negative beforehand before you even left the country and, uh, multiple days, I think in a row before you even left the country. Then when you got to Japan, so he tested negative a lot. And then I guess, you know, what, what, I forget what day it was, but like two days before competition, he tests positive. And I don't know the whole details of whether or not they gave him another test to check. I, I find it hard to believe that they literally just went off of one test and were just like, all right, you're out. You know, I, I want to believe that they like at least like have like some type of <laughs> backup. Right. But that's what's the devastating part because you just then he goes into the quarantine hotel and then he has like a USATF self test. I guess they hit that's the same thing that he had probably been using the weeks leading up to it that they were had to self test themselves. Mm-hmm. And then like while he's in the quarantine hotel, that comes back negative and it's like, damn. But I don't think that, you know. They're not going to count that because it's a self-test versus their official PCR test. But you want to just be like, yeah, okay, but it tested negative. So like, let's just do one more as like a one more I, real one. And I think know? that that is basically like what everybody is just really frustrated about is it's like, okay, like, you know, you, you can't give him like, what if he tested negative like 15 times after that? You know, like it's like, then obviously that would be That's a false brutal. positive. But anyway, he's, you know, it is what it is. It, it, it will go into his story of the whole thing, you know, like at the end of his career, he'll be able to look back and be like, all right, this was just a part of my story. It's a really sucky thing that I had to go through. Um, but I mean, if there's anybody who's going to bounce back from that, it's going to be that dude. So yeah, for sure. I mean, generally one of the nicest people I've met. So it it couldn't have happened to a, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person, which is the unfortunate part. Right. Right. If it was a complete jerk, it would be like, Hey, well, well, it still would have sucked, yeah. but, but it is yeah. unfortunate that it happened to Sam. But, um, so you, you never had any pr- prior pole vaulting experience, uh, before this. No, no, not only did I have much prior pole vaulting, I didn't really travel out of the country. I remember Greg told me that the, um, this is embarrassing on my part, but I'll admit it. He was telling me that the world champs indoor was going to take place in Birmingham. Okay. Now I heard Birmingham. So I was just like, that sounds like the worst place. Why would we were going to have a bunch of people flying to Birmingham? And he was just like, uh, it's in England, Brennan. And I was like, oh, right. Uh, <laughs> Never okay. heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I ended up going to that. So I learned. But uh, yeah, no. Yeah. So I mean, I had I had no prior pole vault knowledge at all. I was pretty clueless about it. Learned fast. 
I'd right. like to think. You know? Well, when you're around it as much as you are, and, and the cool thing is, is that you don't have any, um, you know, previous pole vaulting experience. So like, uh, you know, you maybe have a different angle on like trying to maybe film different things and, and stuff like that, uh, you know, that might appeal to somebody who doesn't have, you know, pole vaulting experience. Cause I think that's probably the whole goal of your, one of the big goals of your film is to appeal to people outside of the pole vault community too. The majority, the majority, I hope, you know, you I mean, know. I love, the, I love the pole vaulters, but like y'all's not that big of a community. So the reality is it's always been my goal. And I say, is like, I'm going to trick a bunch of people into watching a documentary about pole vault, <laughs> you know, yeah. cause pole vaulters will like it because it'll have pole vault and it'll focus on pole vault. But I, I, you know, the reason that I think it is beneficial coming from an outsider is I'm a documentarian. I focus on story. There's a really good story here. It just happens to be about a pole vaulter. So my goal is, you know, this could be something that a more mainstream audience could enjoy while at the same time, the community of pole vaulters would, would love it just to, you know, see pole vault making that mainstream leap maybe. Right. And, and it would really, it would really help us out too, because people would start to recognize like, wow, this is a really, really crazy thing that these people do. And it is amazing, you know, and especially when you watch a guy like Mondo pole vault, it's just a beautiful piece of artwork when he's running down the runway and he, he's just so smooth and, and just, it, it is art. It literally is art in motion, man. It's really, really crazy and fun, fun to watch. So, um, so speaking of that, he's looks awesome. A lot of times has there been, has there been any like practices or like meets where it's just been like, Ooh, I don't know if I need to be putting a camera <laughs> in his face <laughs> or something. <laughs> Uh, like when he's actually jumping or just personally, cause the answer is yes to both. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, look, you know, I mean, and I don't want people to mistake it, you know, the, the, the social media presence and all that. Yeah. It, you know, I like to hype it up just to get people fired up about pole vault, but the film takes a much more nuanced approach. It's not a hype film for Mondo. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, an independent documentary studying this story of this kid, the, both the good and the bad, you know, it's, it's, it's a legitimate, as much as you can be um, objective document, you know, documentary as it can, as it can be. So, yeah, I mean, there's points where I'm in the room and him and his dad are arguing about whether or not he should go to college, for example, like back Mm in uh, 18, I mean, like heated arguments in a hotel room in uh, Clermont-Ferrand, France, you know, going to Renault's meet. um, And they're like really arguing about it. You know, Mondo wants to go pro. He's like, I'm good enough to go pro. Why would I not go pro? And his dad's saying, you have, you just, you're too, immature to understand even what I'm trying to explain to you. Like you need to go get a year of in and all that anyway. And of course, a year later, you know, Mondo says it's the best decision he ever made was going to college. So at least that one year, you know, just to be able to be around other athletes of elite caliber and like become like a team and feel that presence of like camaraderie um, was really important to him. He'll, he'll admit it. It was like, it was a huge formative moment for him and he matured so much that year. So yeah, I mean, I was look. I've been there for the ups and downs, and and there's no doubt about it. And practices, sure, he has a lot of terrible practices. He'll admit that. You know? Well, I guess that's that's probably what uh, you know everybody kind of wants to know is like, okay, like how many outtakes are there, like in between those beautiful jumps that you put up yeah. on your Instagram, yeah. you know. Yeah, don't, isn't that like the the complete like ethos of uh, of social media is that like you only show the good stuff because the reality <laughs> is I mean yeah if you like the Instagram there's you know whatever you see there's literally probably fifty times the amount that is you know a failed attempt or a bailed attempt or a frustrated attempt and all that but 
you know, people want to see the cool stuff. Um, right, but right. yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the reality is I've got hundreds of hours and, and, and multiples of that are, uh, the difficulties that it is to become who he is, you know, not just personally, but also the actual physical aspects of the sport, whether it's trying to work out harder, trying to actually pull vault and failing at practice. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Right. Right. And I think that that'll be cool too, because like you said, we're seeing all of the really, really, you know, awesome jumps, you know, right. but then once the the film actually comes out, it's going to be like, I'm assuming that you're probably going to include some more of like the, Hey, guess what? Mondo just didn't have a cakewalk all the way up to the top, you know, like, it yeah, was well, that was hard. my concern. Yeah. That was my concern. Cause again, you know, it's great personally for him. If he just, from the time he was 17, if he just went into every competition and dominated, you know, how cool would that be for him? But from a documentary standpoint, that sucks. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a boring movie of some kid who's just, <laughs> you know, so good that he really doesn't have any obstacles, but no, he had tons of obstacles. I mean, the moment I started filming him, yeah, he broke the world junior record and then he did the same, but I mean, that whole summer he struggled. He came in seventh place at the world championships. He thought he was going to do well. And the pressure of London just got to him. He came in ninth place at the indoor championships. You know, I mean, he, he really had, he still hasn't beaten Sam, which is what sucks so much about this Olympics. Was this going to be like that one time to see if he could actually do it in a championship when it actually matters? Cause that's another thing. Like when I talk to these pole vaulters, they're all like, you know, it's great to have all these records. It's all that, but all that matters is can you do it when it, <laughs> when it's on the line, you know, right. when a championship is on the line and like, that's where Sam and Renault have proved themselves who they are. They mm-hmm. are the guys who can go to the championships. You could be under the most immense pressure and still get gold or silver, you know? Right. Um, and so Mondo proved himself finally at Doha, but he still couldn't beat Sam, you know? And so there's just something so beautiful about that where you're like, man, like this rivalry is beautiful. It's awesome. But anyway, and it, it's cool too, because it seems like they're pretty good buddies and, and it's a, it's a friendly, a, a friendly rivalry, but I'm, but I'm sure they're probably, you know, pretty competitive and they don't really want to, uh, you know, lose to each other. Is that accurate? Yeah. Oh man. You know, it's funny. Cause after Doha, I had like a talk with Mondo and with Sam and you know, I was just curious how, like how, what the, what perspective changes when it comes to a world championship meet. Because, I mean, look, I'm with these guys all the time. They're eating lunch together, eating dinner together. They're literally hanging out the entire time. Diamond League circuit, they're together. Even the Diamond League final is not as intense. But both of them, without knowing what the others said, both of them are like, when it comes to the championship meet and you see your opponent, he could be your best friend in the world. But, man, you're looking at him differently that day. you know. And, uh-huh. and Mondo said that he saw him in like the hotel lobby, and he's just like, look, there's Sam. There's my buddy. And then he's like, yeah, but that's the dude who's going to take – is that he's the guy that could take gold from me, you know? And right. so it's like this weird thing where like, it just, it becomes a lot more intense, you know? Yeah. And I mean, they've got some serious cash on the line too. Like whenever, whenever they're at these big meets too, like, it's not just like, Oh, Bob, you beat me at the old, uh, high school Friday track meet. You know, it's like tens of thousands of dollars, you know? Yeah. It's a livelihood, you know, it's a yeah. livelihood, you know? Um, so yeah, at that point you're like, now it's not just a fun competition. I mean, you're competing for, for paying the mortgage. Yeah, that's crazy, man. It's a different different level. Um, I actually am really curious and uh, excited to that you had mentioned that part about, uh, you know, Mondo's decision to compete for Sweden because people people who may not understand about U.S. track and field may look at that and be like, oh my gosh, like he's not, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, he was raised in the United States and went to 
U.S. schools and all of these things, and then he's going to go and compete for Sweden. They don't have any freaking idea about what goes into a decision like that, you know, and especially for him with his mom being Swedish and like, and I'm, I think I, from what I know, um, he's, you know, he actually lives over there. He goes over there quite a bit, even before this whole pole vaulting thing. So, uh, it'll be exciting. And I know I don't want to spoil anything and take any, you know, words out of Mondo's mouth, uh, with you explaining all that, but that will be a really, really cool, cool thing. But have you guys come up against that like have you seen that like in action where people kind of come at him for that so this is where it gets difficult for me so let me just preface it with this as a documentarian who has to be objective in this thought i have to see both sides of it and and allow the people who are frustrated to express their opinions especially because there is valid points of him growing up in america right so the, the but the difficulty is it's so hard for me to not have my own opinion about it Mm-hmm. which is clearly that he made the right decision, oh, you know? Yeah. And so it's like this weird thing where, you know, I mean, you should see the vitriolic comments. We all knew it was going to happen around the Olympics. Cause obviously that's when all these couch potatoes are going to finally watch <laughs> sport, you know, the Olympics. And all of a sudden they're going to care about pole vault who they couldn't even name any of the American athletes of the past, you know, two decades. They probably haven't heard of a pole vaulter since Bubka. If right. even that, and and yet they're they're calling him a traitor and all this kind of stuff. So I mean, you had and we're talking local people, like people in Lafayette, Louisiana, that just have like the most like horrific opinions. You know, I could see that <laughs> though, because I I yeah. see Louisiana probably being more of like conservative type thing, sure. where it's sure. just like, hey man, if you're born in America, you better you know do that. So so keep yeah. on going with what you're saying. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no. So, so obviously, yes, this question is like one of the center points of the film, obviously, because it's like everyone's first question is, well, he speaks, he sounds like he's from, you know, the South. Why is it computer sweet? Like, all right, well, how much time do you have? You know, because yeah, right. um, it is, it's a, it's a nuanced discussion. Um, so, you know, I know he turns it off. I mean, he can't deal with that, especially right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you were to ask him, he'd be like, I haven't seen any comments and I don't want to see any comments. Cause you know, why, why would he subject himself to that kind of like hate, uh, being propelled his way? But like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's out there. And the reality is he made the decision. He made it. He had been to Sweden, obviously all of his life. He's half. So, I mean, that's the other thing. People are like, you have to compete for your country. I mean, his country is Sweden. It's also America, but he's literally half. <laughs> so, I mean, you know right. what I mean? It's like right. being a mixed race person. It's like, yeah, you are black and white. Like you are both. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? He is, he is literally, he is literally American and Swedish. So his country is Sweden just as much as America. He spent more time in America. That is true. He grew up in the same hometown as me, but it's not like they didn't go to Sweden. They went there like every summer, you know, his entire right. life. And not like that, but you can't compete in pole vault in America when you're six, seven years old, like where the hell are you going to compete? There's no right. place to go uh, other than the Reno pole vault summit, which is a whole nother thing we talked about. But um, other than that, I mean, you can't even, you can't even go to a, a track because Louisiana is the most like litigious state in America. And so if no one's going to let you go to their track, whether it's a high school or college, cause if you break your leg, you're going to sue them. So he, you can't do anything. So what do you do? You build in your backyard, you know, but in right. Sweden, he could show up as a six year old and like, they were competing like in competitions every summer in sweden so did he belong to a club over there or something or yeah yeah he belongs to like his his mom's club and they've been like that for a really long time the mom the the club that she was a part of back in the day um wow 
So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where like people act like he's never been to Swedish, Sweden, that he, you know, has no relation to these people. It's like his grandparents live in Sweden. His aunts, his aunt and cousin lives in Sweden. Yeah, he has aunts and cousins in America, but he literally has an entire family in that. You know what I mean? Like, so it's literally like 50 50. So it's just like, like yeah. you said, like it's, it's, he's just as much Swedish as he is American. So it's just like you kind of have to choose. And at that point, I mean, like you said, you kind of got to look at the opportunity that you're going to have and you got to look at your future and like, okay, well, how, like if I want to make pole vaulting my career and I want to make this my livelihood, like how, like you were talking about, how am I going to pay the mortgage? Okay. How am I going to, you know, I'm sure he's not talking, thinking about raising kids, but like, how am I going to have money to raise kids? And like, how am I going to do all of these things? Um, when you look at it that way, the opportunity for financial gain and financial stability probably, I would assume, in Sweden is probably just going to be better just because it's a more uh, mainstream sport. And I mean, he's probably like freaking Michael Jordan over there right now. Like, he's, yeah, I mean, he's the most famous athlete in Sweden as of right now. You know, I'm about to go and I'm going to see on the train stations like his banner. You know, posters of him are like around bus stops and train stations and the news. I mean, it's just, it's like being a really good football player here. I mean, it's just, that's their sport. It's either soccer or or it's track and field. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's others, but it's like the main three here. And we just don't have that here. We have other really cool sports and that's the one that we focus on. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't think when he chose to compete for Sweden, he was thinking of necessarily the things you mentioned. I think now in retrospect, it's like, oh, that is probably better for me for my family later on or financially and all that. Um, but I mean, at the time he was 15 years old. I think it was just, he had been in Sweden. He really liked the track club system there and he had been allowed to compete really young in Sweden and he made friends there and they were offering, uh, to bring, I think one of the big ones is they offered to let his dad become one of the coaches on the Swedish mm. team. Oh, and, uh, wow. I didn't know that. You know, that that offer I don't think was, and I don't want to put words in USATF's mouth, but I don't know if that offer was made. So I think when Monda realized he could have his dad with him, uh, it was like a no brainer, you know, because obviously that bond is extremely important. And as you can tell by now, uh, it worked out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely it definitely is the right decision for him. And and you know, people need to just kind of get off their high horse and be like, hey, man, this is not your life. This is not your decision to make. Like, you can feel a type of way about it, but he's a really nice person and he's just trying to do what's best for him and his family Well, it's like that i mean i think the simone biles thing has like really kind of brought that to to the forefront because it just shows that a lot of people they just they have so many opinions and they just want to say them and they don't know they don't know anything about it Mm -hmm. you know they just i mean i think that that's the most extreme example because she's so famous that you know everyone talks about it but like mondo's got like a very small version of that but yeah it's just people that have opinions and they don't know enough about the topic but they still express their opinion such as our culture today Right. They're coming from a place of ignorance. They're, they're talking about things that they have, they have zero experience with. They have, uh, you know, that that's, it's very ignorant for somebody who has never, you know, even some people are never even picked up a pole vaulting pole or, or never, like you said, they don't even know who the three Americans are over there right now. Like they have no idea. So it's just like, dude, shut your mouth and, you know, get over it. So what is like the craziest, like what's been the biggest hurdle for you personally in this, like whether it be, um, you know, filming or fundraising or, uh, travel or, or 
or all of them or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at that point you can just pick the litter there. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the, all the above. Sure. Um, I mean, it's an independent film, you know, I, I hope to one day sell it to some big place and I think it's going to be good enough to, to be on a platform that is exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's me out there, you know, it's like, I, I started like, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, it was all fun and games walking across the street and just kind of filming even at that point whether i didn't even know if it was a documentary if i was just filming for preservation sake like oh i should have this footage in case one day he goes to do something and then all right. of a sudden a couple years later i'm literally going to europe twice a year you know so um it's just logistically really complicated to do all this alone <laughs> when you're traveling and so filming you're literally and- alone like you don't have any other filmers you don't. Now, so now I have a team behind me, but when it comes to actual filming of it, for the most part, it's still me alone, just because I've established this incredibly like intimate relationship. And honestly, bringing other people in would probably just not make it as good. It would help logistically for me, you know, it would help out just, um, you know, just making sure that I don't have to deal with audio or so I, I can, I can stand aside for the camera and have someone operate. But because of the the intimacy that I've established with the Duplantis family and how much they've let me in, I can't help but think that if you start bringing in other people involved, I'm not going to be able to get the same type of, you know, honesty out of them. That's a very good point because they're definitely now they understand how committed you are to it. And they're like, Hey man, this guy's very committed to, you know, documenting this for, for us and, 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 you know, for the pole vaulting community and, and everybody else, not just the pole vaulting community. Um, but I, I could see how, if you were to be like, Hey, here's Joe blow, he's going to be coming in your hotel room tonight. And when you guys are arguing, he's going to be here, you know, (laughs) like it would be like, okay, this is too strange. And then it would just be like, eventually they would you might run the risk of them just being like, Hey, no, 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 we don't, we don't want Joe blow in here. So just get out, yeah. you know, like, yeah, so. I mean, I've worked really hard to make my presence invisible. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, sometimes when you're a documentarian, you really want to be, in, you want, you want your presence to be known. I mean, some documentaries are very much like that when the actual director is like a part of the film. And sometimes you want it to be known in the sense of like, you can get stuff out of them. And I certainly, you know, I exploit that as well. And when, when I do need to get something out of them, I can ask questions, but a lot of the times it's a matter of, I need to stay out the hell, the hell out of the way and let this unfold. You know, mm-hmm. it's very cine, cinema verite in that style and saying something is happening right now and uh, I need to be invisible, you know, right? Um, which can be pretty difficult when then you have to be like, oh, wait, actually, I'll hold the car. I have to get in the backseat, <laughs> you know, and like throw your throw your bags in the backseat and be like, all right, I'm not invisible. I actually do need some space in the trunk to put my bag if you don't mind. Sorry. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's and that is where the logistic part gets complicated because it would be nice to just have a trail car that can carry all the equipment. But then all right. of a sudden you're invisible and you're invisible. And then now, Oh, we have to wait for Brennan to load up his crap. So Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, you, the, the more you add, the more your costs goes up and then, and then the budget, you know, starts to kind of look a little bit uh, sketchier or whatnot. So have there been any, any times that you have like been out there and you'd be like, I can't believe that I wasn't there. I can't believe I missed that. Oh Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's like, that's like countless. I mean, I wasn't there for the first world record. I was there for the second one, but I mean, I, I wasn't able to go. I was like talking with him and he went to, uh, you know, he was saying, basically I'd filmed him practicing it at, at LSU and he was jumping like really good at practice. Mm-hmm. And I like got his dad saying to camera, I think he's going to break the world record. Cause I think he jumped something like he jumped six Oh five or six at, at practice 
indoors and it was just like stupid good. And then he took like two attempts at 610 and he didn't make them, but it was so good that you were a little shocked. And, and, and Mondo is like chronically bad at practice. Okay. I mean, like this is Whoa. like, he is, he is not a strong practicer. He's gotten a lot better, but like for the first three years of filming, like he was not taking serious jumps at practice. It was really more about just honing in the jumps he knew he needed to hone in. So, you know, I think the highest I'd ever seen him jump was like 585 or something in practice, maybe 590 one time in three years. Most of the time it was 570, 580, right? right? So all of a sudden he was like, put it up at six meters, clear six meters. That might've been the first time I, that actually may have been the first time he ever cleared six meters in practice. That was indoors. You said at indoors. LSU. Yeah. This is like early 2020, um, before he left for, right. um, that indoor circuit. And then he put it up on 610 and took like a ridiculous stab at it. And we were all just blown away. And so his dad was like, I think he's going to do it. So of course now I'm like trying to book tickets, figure out which, like which meet do I go to? Okay. I don't think he's going to break it at the first one. Cause he's going to need to establish it. So like he jumps there. I forget if the first one was, uh, Dusseldorf or not. I can't remember which the first one. I'm terrible. Okay. Well, anyway, he, stuff. he, at one of, he was the first one and the second one was when he attempted it and like he barely brushed it off. Oh, of his arm. I remember that one. That was when everyone was like, Oh yeah, that's going down. Right. So then, so I'm like talking to him that night and he's like, don't worry, bro. It's not going to happen in Tarun. Like Glasgow's the place. So I was like, okay, like I'm booking my ticket for Glasgow. Like I'm coming, <laughs> we're going to make it happen. And then he breaks it at Tarun. And he was like, what am I supposed to do? Not break it. I was feeling it. I'm like, that's fair. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. I would much rather, it's much more, I'd much rather you break it than me be there. Let's put it that way. If I had to choose one or the other, but luckily, look, I was there for Glasgow. That was arguably even cooler, <laughs> you know, how much he blew that one up. And, yeah. uh, um, and now it's just been, uh, that was crazy too. Cause right after that, you know, it was like those three meets after that. And then he ended with Claremont Ferrand and, uh, Renault's meet almost cleared 619. We both flew home at the same time. It was like right around Mardi Gras in Louisiana. It's like, yeah. we flew home like on Mardi Gras day, Mardi Gras happens like a week later, the entire country shuts down. So it was so wild that like, it went from like this insane high. Everyone's talking about, you broke the world record. This is in the bag. The Olympics are literally three, I guess at that time it was what, four months away or something. Right. And it was like, everything shuts down. And, and now it's been basically a whole year of him just like trying to get back to where he was, you know, cause well, he hasn't broken it. He hasn't broken that one since. Um, th think about how crazy that is like for you too. And I think that that is also another thing. Like you rolled the dice on this, like way back in the day, like how many years into the project are you now? It's like, it's, it's like four and a half. Okay, so four and a half years ago, you've been working on this project. That's in my head, like that's crazy that you just haven't just been like, you know what, let's just do this a two part and, you know, slice it in half and then we'll do it part two later. Like you've had the patience, but gosh, dang, man, as, as like a filmmaker and a documentarian, like you have been saying, how crazy is it? You're not only filming one the world's greatest pole vaulter that has ever lived in my, in my opinion, I mean, the highest for sure. Um, but you literally caught a insane moment in history too, like yeah, at I the same time. Yeah. It is kind of funny how like the film almost took on like, well, shit, this is going to be kind of historical at this point. Like it'll have a historical angle to it because I don't know how many people were in the middle of filming like a world-class athlete when this happened, like this right. far into a pro pro project, I should say. So like, it is a really, really weird, especially like right after he broke the world record that this happened. Right. <laughs> but you know, it was, it was tough, but, uh, but then you kind of think about it and you're like, Oh wait, you know, 
if I just hold my head up high and we just get through this, this will be really, really wild to see like what the hell it's like for like an athlete who just did like the craziest thing has now like has to restart, you know? And that was like, I mean, the, the best footage I think I've ever gotten was him back at his backyard, <laughs> back in the backyard where like it all began for him. And he and his dad have to chop down the overgrowth trees, you know, they have to rebuild the runway and they're like, I guess this is what we're going to have to do. And he's like, you know, now you've got the world. It'd be like Usain Bolt, like having to do, you know, sprints at like his, like at a dirt track or something. Like he first got his start at It's like, oh my God, here we go. Like this dude is going to, he's now the world record holder and he's going to jump with a, a brick fence an inch away from the pit. <laughs> you know, it's just That's like, sketchy. yeah, it's crazy. It he looks like he doesn't really care about stuff like that though. I don't know. He just looks like mentally, he's just like a, a young person. That's just like, just really just aggressive and just kind of like, I'll jump anywhere. I don't know. Oh, that's yeah. just, that's what he comes off as to me. Well, um, the pit was disgusting. Okay. I mean, it yeah. was disgusting. It had been sitting there for almost, you know, a decade. And I mean, he started jumping on, he finished that. He looked like the grossest person you've ever seen. He was like, Oh, that was awesome. That was fun. You know, it's oh like getting back gosh. to childhood. And I mean, I was like, okay, you know, so can you tell us the record, the backyard record? Yeah, it's 17 feet. Uh, or no, is that? That's not correct. I'm sorry. It's five meters. 17 feet is 520, isn't it? 17 feet is 520, yeah. Okay, so uh, I don't want to get that wrong. I believe it's five meters is the backyard record. And wow. um, he had said it actually like back in the day. You know, That was like his record when he was still running for like, you know, whatever, 16 steps in the backyard where they had to like open, you know, because the, the runway like goes and then there's the fence. And then they had to like open, they had to like make a hole in the fence. And then it has like a little sketchy, smaller runway that goes into the front yard people that drive by i mean seriously they, everyone just thinks they're this crazy family <laughs> but, That's hilarious. you know so back in the day he would literally run like through the small gap in the fence to the wider runway to then jump and i think he did five meters when he was like whatever 14 or 15 but uh but then he did it in the backyard he did it from like you know now when covid hit he did it from like six steps or something Right. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, that's, that's insane, man. That's, it's really, really crazy how it all, like you had said, like it shut down. I, I remember like texting with my brothers about it and just being like, man, like, what do you do if you're Mondo? Like you are on fire right now. Yeah. I mean, he, who we, we don't know what he, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, obviously. And, you know, he is where he is now. And I think he looks just as good or better now, but, um, it's just crazy because you're, you're on fire, you're on a roll. And then it's like, you have no choice in this matter. You are now going to have the next year of your life severely altered. And, uh, and so, so what was that like, for for you too like how how did you guys maintain motivation you know to continue to make the film mm -hmm. and you know things like that i had a pretty bad slump man i got i got it got really difficult just because things just weren't going well and then like you know you have you know when he breaks the world record you have a lot of people interested and then all of a sudden this happens like oh let's talk again and you know closer and you're like god dude i just spent you know i've spent my entire life on this thing and like I had a lot of, you know, I had it in my hand kind of situation and then it's gone because of COVID. Um, and then the other difficulty was just filming. Filming was so hard for like the first while because, um, you know, there was quarantines and stuff. So I was able to like, get cameras to him and then he would travel overseas. And I mean, no American was allowed to go overseas in the beginning. So like I couldn't even try to go and film some of those stuff. So like when he broke the, you know, 
when he broke the world uh, outdoor record in Rome when he jumped 615. I mean, let alone I wasn't there. There was no one in the stands either. But so, I mean, that that was really, really tough. But I spent that time saying, okay, uh, I just need to edit. <laughs> I need to do a lot of editing. I need to start cutting. I need to start going through everything I have, which is what I've basically been doing for the past year. Other than when he would come home, of course, I'd be able to get tons of footage with him. But it was just when he would go overseas. You know, he spends about half of his time now mm-hmm. here and half his time overseas. Right. So, you know, I would get quite a few months of filming, but then it would be like a couple of months of I can't get anything. You know, I can't right. do I can't get any footage right now. And uh, that was just the way it was. You know, I mean, it's just the way it was. And and I and I, I had to recognize that. Um you know, I'm not going to be able to be there for everything. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to think of because you're, you are kind of gambling every time you book a ticket, especially with like the independent nature of it. I mean, you know, you don't know if he's going to do something special or if he's going to flop or whatever. So mm-hmm. you just, you just, uh, you just take what you get, you know, and craft the story around it. And knowing that you're going to end up licensing half this footage anyway, because you have to from these competitions, you know? Right. Um, but for him, I mean, I think it's remarkable for him because for him to stay motivated in shape and then be able to perform in front of nobody for like, basically a full year you know i mean he's still i mean mean, right now he's competing in front of nobody you know i know you forget about that because yeah we finally like started getting fans back in stands and stuff in sweden was awesome with like a bunch of people there and then you're right i've completely yeah i mean he is in front of nobody now but i think he's proved that he can do in front of nobody so oh absolutely yeah and i mean once you get uh, you know obviously having the fans in the stands i i personally think that he he probably you know, thrives off of the hype and, and feeling the energy. He, he looks like that type of pole vaulter. That's like, okay, like you said, like he, he struggles in practice, but then once you get him into a meet and you get the hype up and the music's going and the crowds into it, you know, he, he thrives in, in a situation like that, but at least they have each other. Like they have their pole vault, like group and it's like they're trying to one up each other still so that's some sort of motivation and and uh and things like that but um i you had mentioned a couple uh a minute or two ago about um kind of having some sort of understanding of the timing of when something's going to pop so Mm -hmm. before that first world record was it pretty clear that it was like, okay, this is, this is going to be something very big. And did it happen? You had mentioned one workout, but it was, did it like grow? Like, was there a point where it was like, okay, these last couple months of training have been insane. No, you know, it it was, you know what it was like? It was like when he did uh, the 605 in Berlin at eight, when he was 18, 2018. Um, Because that kind of came out of nowhere, but it really didn't. Cause you know, he had jumped 580. Uh, I think it was 10 out of 12 meets in a row. And Renault had told him that if you can consistently jump five, eight, you could jump six meters, but he still never jumped six meters. Right. And so it's like, yeah, he's jumping really well. He's jumping all these consistent five eighties. Uh, but then all of a sudden it's, he can jump six Oh five, you know, it's, right. so it felt like it came out of nowhere, even though it didn't, of course, but that's a big leap, you know? And it yeah. kind of felt like that with the world record in the sense of, I mean, you knew he could jump six Oh five. So the difference between his previous, world junior record and 605 was 12 centimeters and uh that was the exact same gap between 605 and 617 so you're kind of like i mean if he has that one monumental leap of a day he can do it you know right, right. and and that was you know that was it so the practice i mean i really i i'd have to go back and watch but if i remember correctly it was like some pretty normal regular practices and then it was one day where it was like 
oh shit <laughs> it's about to go down so like i yeah. don't know like i don't know your your understanding of of like uh actual like technical numbers and things like that but like yeah, we were there were that. there were there any like uh okay now he's getting onto these poles and he's gripping this high now like he he's he's bumped his grip up like a whole bunch in a certain amount of time or he's like consistently jumping on these bigger poles that he struggled with before was that kind of happening too yeah i'm gonna screw that up because that's pretty that's yeah, like no, no, it's no, stuff it's... i hear all the time but i know i mean i know he's like you know whatever he he jumps on like you know a, a 12 or even sometimes like a, i don't know has he gone to an 11 9 pole i can't remember I but can it, see he's anyway fast. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk because he's going to end up listening to this and tell me I sound like an idiot. So, <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, in a, in a much broader sense, without me getting technical, yes, he was getting on bigger poles, and yes, he was you know feeling way more confident and and moving them a lot easier. You know, he was right. blowing through poles that maybe previously he was like, "That's a really stiff pole for me," and all of a sudden he's blowing through them. You know, right. so right. I don't want to go to the actual numbers because I'm going to screw it up. But basically, that was starting to happen for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, I don't know. I just find that very interesting because it, whenever I saw him jump uh, that world record, uh, I was like, okay, they knew that was coming. You don't break the world record by that much. Like you don't bomb the world record, like without being like in practice, like, okay, they knew that bad boy was going to pop off pretty soon. So, yeah. um, so you had mentioned licensing, uh, and I'm, pretty sure you're going to have some licensing to do currently on where he's at right now. Right now he's just completely annihilated 575 in the prelim, like completely annihilated it. I mean, just a huge jump. Um, but how devastating was it for you whenever you found out I'm not going to be able to go to Tokyo? Cause I'm sure you were probably planning on going of course yeah originally. yeah well uh, uh, but a common misconception of people is like re regardless of whether i'm there or not you have to license the footage i mean the olympics and nbc and all that you know the broadcasters own that footage just like i could just if i had magically been allowed to go that i would somehow be able to film his jumps and then use that in a commercial documentary i'd get sued so fast it's ridiculous so so couldn't you get a press pass or something though yeah but yeah but that's that's for you know, that's not for commercial use. So there's a big oh. difference. And so that's why like making, like I truly could not have picked a more complicated first feature film to make just because <laughs> the logistics of dealing with like international organizations and the rights and who owns the rights. I mean, I'm telling you, dude, this is like, this is intense shit. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it is, it's a lot. And, um, and so the reality is like, you're at these competitions. So for me, like my, always my goal was I'm here to film what no one else can film because I can go to these competitions. I can be in the stands and I can film it. I may or may not be able to allow to use that footage, or I may have to license my own footage to use in the documentary for commercial use, right? From inside the stadium because the broadcaster owns that. All right. I mean, it gets very complicated. Whoa. So for me, I'm all, I'm there to get what no one else can get. I'm in the hotel room with them. You know, I'm getting like all of the actual story, knowing mm -hmm. that, the cost or the cost, whatever the costs are, I'll get, you know, I'll, I raise the right amount of money or you have to do what you got to do. I'll get the investment to, to license the stuff that everyone can already see. Everyone has seen the footage on TV. So it's not special, you know, but it, but it serves the story. So my goal is like, what can I film that I know I can use? That is that super intimate stuff that no one else can get mm. that can then serve the story the most toward then the footage I have to license is the least amount possible. That makes sense. No, that makes total sense. And now I, I, I actually, it's very interesting to me. I, you know, 
from an outsider, you know, when you watch a documentary, it's just like, oh, cool. He just like walked around with his with his film and or with his uh, camera and he just did all this stuff. And then he just pops right. it up there. And and then I'm like, and then you just like, you were like, yeah, even if it's, even if I film with my own camera from the stands, you still are probably going to have to Yeah, you don't own that footage to the, in that. the eyes of the broadcasters. You know, social media and stuff's a different story because everyone's posting stuff on social media and yada, yada, yada. But right. if you're trying, if you're selling a commercial film, you know, if, if a big streamer is buying your film, you better be damn sure they're going to make sure that you have the rights to every second wow. of footage in your movie. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's why. I mean, truly for me, it's always been about I'm here to film what no one else can get right? I've established a relationship. I've got this intimacy. I know this story. So right. I'm here to film all the stuff that no one really knows about the stuff behind the scenes that happens, that builds up the character that builds up this person that then builds up the anticipation for this moment at the big event. And then you right. just have to use a little bit of footage from that, from that event to kind of, you know, right. Finish, because everybody already it. saw that everybody already saw right. him do, you right. know, break that world record or whatever, you know, right. they so, most likely will not be seeing it for the first time in my documentary. Right. If they're seeing right. him break the world record, they're going to say like, Oh, there's that stuff that happened, you know, but they won't see what it was like in the hotel room before they won't see what it's like after, you know, that's what I'm bringing to the table. Right. And what's so cool about that is because like in our shoes right now, as people who haven't seen that, we see people jump and do really well. And we get to see that. And we get to have our own depiction of like, I have watched, I watched him just pull vault and do that. And I think in my head that, you know, this is the storyline and you kind of make it up in your own head. And like I was saying earlier, uh, the misconception is, is, Oh, well, every time I've seen Mondo jump, dude's just bombing bars, you know, he's just doing great, you know? So, right. so there might be some people out there that might be like, well, this must've been, you know, fairly simple and straightforward from what I've seen, you know, moving through. But then the coolest part about documentaries is that then you can go back and you can remember that moment that you saw that and you'd be like, whoa, there's a whole other story to this whole thing. Like, yeah. that's insane. I had no idea that this happened or that happened. Um, and that's when all those little details come out. And that's that's what's so cool about documentaries um, is you get to see all of that. And that I, I totally understand that that would be, that is the meat and potatoes of what you are going to want as a documentarian is, is to have those, you know, cool things. Um, yeah. I mean, the way I, I kind of started when I was filming too, like all I could think of was if he breaks the world record, how cool it'd be that like, this is the footage you have of the world record holder before, you know what I mean? So it's like, right. whether he's having a bad practice or having an argument or whatever it is, you're thinking, Oh my God, if he does what he's capable of doing, potentially, this right. is a really special moment. You know, is there a documentary that you could point to? I, I would assume it'd be an athletic documentary that you could point to that you could be like, this is somewhat similar to kind of what I'm working on. The one that I thought of, uh, don't take any offense if you don't like this one, um, that I thought of that it could possibly be like is that I like is uh, Conor McGregor's Notorious. I really like watch. I, you know, I liked seeing him like in those, uh, you know, underground fight clubs or whatever, and seeing him, you know, get the letters from the Irish equivalent to the IRS, uh, you know, and things like that. Like, it was like, whoa, I, you know, I have a whole different perspective on how he came up. Is there a yeah. documentary you could kind of point to or? 
I mean, I watched a lot of documentaries. Actually, I watched that one. Um, I started like getting really deep into the sports docs just to like start to see what other people were doing and kind of if I was, if I can get inspired and whatnot. So Conor McGregor's is a pretty good one. Um, you know, the personalities are pretty different, although Mono can be a little, you know, a little Conor sometimes, um, <laughs> especially in his, especially in his younger days. I've always said the older he gets, you know, or the more famous he gets, the more uh, humbled he is, which is an interesting uh, parallax, I think. But, that is um, interesting. but, um, I mean, so I'd say that one. I watched Magnus actually. That uh, it's a chess documentary about the Grandmaster from Nor- Norway. I think it's on Netflix actually. It's called Magnus. It's about Magnus, Magnus Carlson, okay. and he's like the greatest chess player in the world, and he's like a prodigy. And I took a lot of inspiration from that. I took a ton of inspiration from Free Solo, which I think is like one of the greatest oh, documentaries man. I've ever seen. Um, Amazing. That, that to me was just like that was perfect to find like just someone sheerly obsessed with their sport because that was Mondo, you know. Right. Um, he's not taking that kind of a risk and that sort of a leap. And I think that what Alex Honnold did was like the greatest achievement ever. But uh, I took a ton of inspiration from that, just of how they filmed it and kind of you know how they shaped the documentary. That it wasn't just a rock climbing film. They did the perfect what I think is like the perfect medley of they were able to make a regular person who doesn't care about rock climbing, care about rock climbing. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm here to watch this story unfold and it's an incredible story. I want to do that with this story. You know, I want people to at the end go, Cobalt's kind of cool, you know, right. but I'm, but I'm watching the documentary because of this incredible story and because of this like human interest story. But then at the same time, you're like, I really, this pole stuff is kind of interesting, you know? So right. free solo. I got a lot into the rock climbing documentaries. Actually. I think they're Did super you cool. You watch the Don wall. Yeah, that's. I was about to say that one. So that yeah. one didn't didn't inspire as much as because there. I think that one's much more of like that buddy buddy. But I guess when you think about it, of like the Sam Kendrick's Mondo friendship rival, the best of frenemies kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely that you know kind of relates to Donwall. I thought the the Donwall might even be better. It's so good. It's so good because you think like there's just no like it's it's probably the most like perfect storybook documentary you know where it just like doesn't make sense how perfectly it's shaped up you know free solo is like incredible but dawn wall is just like it's like it could be a book you know it's just like too perfect you know yeah the dawn wall was really crazy i liked i think that free solo was um I'm sure if you like are a filmer and like, I'm sure that, that like you could probably like geek out on like the gear and the angles and like all the, I'm sure you've watched behind the scenes stuff on how they filmed all of that. And who's the guy who did that? Was that, uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a, a husband and wife, Jimmy Chin and uh, Jimmy Chai Vassarali. Um, yeah, they, yeah. they did May Rue together, that documentary about the, um, the, the yep. XB or whatever it's called. But anyway, um, you yeah, know, so, so free solo was much more of like a care. Like I took inspiration from like the character study. And then of course, like the logistics of filming something that crazy was insane, but also like they did such a good job with like the, into the mind of this guy, the Dawn wall was just like, this is the craziest story ever, you right. know? And they did right. a really good job of bringing it to the screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I think the Dawn wall was, was a really, really crazy one. I, I was, uh, I found myself really like in my head, like, rooting for i forget who the uh tommy caldwell's the guy the main uh, you know one of the great climbers of all time but then uh his it's his kevin buddy. it's either kevin jorgensen or jurgis something like that yeah yeah poor guy sorry I can't, sorry I can't kevin. Remember his name, <laughs> yeah. man i mean poor guy he's a, because, he's a big he's a big fan of this podcast he's gonna listen but yeah uh, right <laughs> <laughs> sorry if, kev 
if he uh i mean whenever they were at that spot where it was like dude like you have to make it past this point and it was just like i just don't i don't i didn't know what the result was but uh i was like man i don't know if this dude's gonna make it past this point and then he gets past that point yeah yeah Yeah, watching watching that film not knowing the story was so much better (laughs) oh yeah because i just you really you really don't know what's going on so that it was awesome yeah and i didn't know i'm not talking about like you don't know anything in the story like don't even look up tommy caldwell don't look up anything about because just just go watch it because it just keep every time another like layer happens and you're thinking there's just no way <laughs> like this dude is still gonna right it's crazy yeah yeah and it's really crazy uh my parents just got back from yosemite and uh i was like man i really want to go and see el cap and just like like stand at the base of it just so i can get the scope of have you ever been there it's my it's on it's probably the number one place i want to go now yeah i just want to see so i can get the scale of what they did because i think that that will add a whole nother layer uh to everything and and i and i think too like you see mondo vaulting on on film and that's one thing but then if you go and I, and I, I watched him vault when he was younger, but I've, I've never seen him uh, vault these giant heights. Um, I think that that would add another layer. It's like, whoa, like you see it in person too. So that's pretty cool that you've been able to like travel around and actually see it in person. You're just probably used to him just bombing over 580 bars like it's nobody's business. You know, and again, from the outsider perspective, it is really weird because it's true. Like, it's so it's become so normal that like i'm sure like any like pole vultures would be so excited to see it and now it's just like i mean yeah he's bombing you know that's what he does he just he can jump 596 meters now and it's like sure i guess but i mean i know how significant it is but man when you see it over and over again it does become kind of regular it's really wild i've been experimenting with like what angles truly like show this you know show it in the proper way because it is it's weird on film you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause like, I, like I have like some videos where you like post them online. Cause you know, you want people to get excited about this thing. And so like you have some from the stands and like, they get like crazy amounts of views. I'm like, really from the stands, but I guess I get it. Cause he's jumping like as high as the people in the stands. And so like, they kind of love that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, but then like I do somewhere it's like really low angle and you know, people like that too, but maybe not as, as I'm experimenting to figure it out. Yeah. You know? Like I said, man, the, I think the coolest one was, uh, was that one that you filmed with your makeshift, <laughs> makeshift yeah, yeah, yeah. rig. I mean, because that kind of, if I remember correctly, you, you kind of started at runway level and then you were able to follow him up throughout the whole process. And I think that was really cool, but that was my next question is have you like, when you watch pole vaulting a coach as a coach, you know, I, I coach hundreds of kids. Um, and it's, I always want to see that profile view because as a coach, that's best area way to coach, you know, but have you experimented around with like other angles that are not classic pole vault angles? Like, is that, is that part of your kind of process? Like you want to maybe, maybe exploit a new angle that everybody's like, Whoa, I've never seen the pole vault from that. Yeah. I think the other day I experimented in, in Sweden before he left for Tokyo, I put the camera in between like the box, like underneath the, um, like where the box meets the pit. Okay. There's like that little, you know, whatever there's like an inch and I just like lifted the foam up and I'll put the camera there. So it's like, kind of like at the tip of the box level, that was a really cool shot to get because it just kind of shows like the entrance into the box, which is cool. Um, 
And then, I mean, yeah, I think like the coolest stuff for me is slow motion straight down the pipe because you get the, you get to really finally visualize how much the pole is actually moving. Cause no one really sees that. No one understands like how much this thing is wobbling. Right. Um, and when you see it in slow motion, you're like what? That's insane. And then that same angle, when you're like looking straight down at them and they're coming towards the camera. So you see the wobble of the pole and then they go up. And then to me, that's the coolest angle of when they come over the bar, like, and you see just the backside of them. Cause they're always wearing their, you know, right. their, whatever their, their name tag on the side. And like the one shot of him, like uh, from, um, from Berlin and like the, the stadium lights are, in the background that's yeah. the coolest shot to me but yeah. but it doesn't but but from a pole vaulter i get because like that's not that doesn't really show you it, it doesn't help you as a pole vaulter to watch it because you don't really see as much um, yeah but you from a want filmmaker, to diagnose cool. right you wouldn't want to diagnose a pole like a vault for as a coach you would not that angle would not be advantageous like if somebody sh- there's kids at, at uh the gym that i coach at um they're constantly trying hey we're, we're working on the angles for instagram man like hey coach can i can i go up next to the pit and lay down on the ground and do this and then they'll be like look at this jump and i'll be like that angle shows me nothing as a coach, right. man. Like right. you, it's no help. It's cool. It's cool, but it shows me nothing. I got to send you um, some photos after this of a photo shoot that I did whenever I was jumping back uh, in the day uh, with a photographer, a really amazing Chicago area photographer, Steve Waltman. He uh, does NFL and, and he, and we, he was like, I want to do a photo shoot with you guys. And he had a relay system where he does stills. So like he has a relay system though. And he was able to like finagle it in the box, um, to where it like looks straight up Mm -hmm. and man, I got to show you some of those photos. Um, because that is a really, really cool angle. I still think that some of those photos that we have, like, you know, I have my own opinion, but I think there's some of the best, pole vaulting photos i've ever seen like they're really really cool i gotta send them to you yeah please do because that's actually that's 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 an interesting thing that i I just found um you know i've been experimenting like with the history obviously so part of the film is going to be talking about the history of the sport i want to spend like at least a couple minutes on that and uh you know you want to talk about how like you know whatever you started with bamboo and then of course you had all these variations of poles and then all of a sudden they start bending the pole and like i found this one shot where it's basically that what you're telling me in video mode but it's like filming like whatever the 60s i literally don't know how they got this shot because i I know how i know how big film cameras are back then it's like i don't know how but it's that where it's like it's looking straight up and you just see the i mean it looks like it yeah i mean granted they were using a very flimsy pole i'm sure but it was just really cool because you see him go over the bar but it just like it's such like a shocking thing when you see it bend that much from that angle you know right well they they what you didn't see is they literally had a dude laying down in the box no i'm just joking i don't know that for sure but i mean how else his leg spread (laughs) right right how else would you do that that's crazy okay well i want to respect your time here i know you're busy and uh you're probably going to be doing a bunch of editing or whatever, whatever you got going on. But, um, I, I am, uh, curious, just kind of two, two quick questions. Uh, if you don't mind, um, any like crazy adventure that you've been on, like maybe the crazy, I mean, I'm sure it's been a wild ride, but is there one particular adventure? There is, I don't know if I can say it though. So, oh shit. Hey, if you're gonna get in trouble, I don't. I don't want to get yeah. in trouble. So I think you can give we'll us a to- watered down one if you want. <laughs> 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 Please don't get me in trouble. Yeah, 
this okay we, you may have to like bring me on like another year from now and i'll tell you this story but okay right. um so let me think here uh okay i'll tell you i mean this isn't necessarily pole vault related but it is kind of funny so i learned that i guess it's kind of terrible but you know i've done i do all these flights and i'm flying on like literally now defunct airlines right they don't even exist like they, they stopped they, they had to close the airline okay like that's how i was getting overseas you wow. know on these like these shitty airlines and um but I did learn that, you know, everyone tries, if you have a ticket, like a, a actual seated ticket, um, well, everyone tries and rush on the plane. They want to check it. They want to get there. And that's the dumbest thing in the world to me. Because what I learned is, is that if you have, if it's a seated, well, everyone has a seat, then if you get on the plane last, well, any open seat technically is your seat. There right? you go. Yeah. Because no one's sitting there. So let's just say I flew to Europe a couple of times in the poor man's first class and it was, it was awesome. That's it was really good. Up. But so one time, but the problem is you have to make sure that you are in fact last on the plane. So you really have to like awkwardly get to the flight as late as possible. Right. So there was right. one time that I was flying Norwegian air and all these other like terrible airlines I was flying, they didn't have a real first class. It was really just a glorified business class. There was no, let's put it this way. There was no left turn when you get into the plane, you know, nowadays if you get first class, you have to turn left. Everyone else goes right. Right. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. so, so I would have been used to going right. And then you just, you know, maybe sit and I'm not even talking like a fancy seat. I'm talking like a slightly bigger seat than the regular, <laughs> you know, but I thought I could pull the same stunt and it was an airline that had the left turn for first class. And I did not realize that. So I get on the flight, like literally with, I'm talking two minutes before they're closing the thing. And she's like, where's your ticket? I'm like, Oh, it's that way. So I just, I go left and I, I'm like, oh god, this is a disaster already. I could tell that I could tell they're on to me, and the only seat available was literally one A, and I was like, uh, okay, and I'm like wearing like a full like Swedish like tracksuit, you know, because I just right. borrow, I just borrow all the clothes from the planets at this point, and um, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this could either be a disaster, or it could be awesome. So I set up my bag and all, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I got tons of bags. It's just overkill and all that. So anyway, we're sitting there and I'm just kind of twiddling my thumbs. And of course, like they're literally closing the door and you hear like some dude running down the uh, thing. And I'm like, I'm like, there's no way, there's no way (laughs) that this dude is in. There's plenty of other seats in the back. Like there's no way he's in my seat. So you see him take a left and he's heading towards me. And I'm like, I'm caught. (laughs) So they literally like, sir, is this your seat? I'm like, I guess I'm in the wrong seat. I thought I was in the right. So they look at my thing, (laughs) my ticket was like 49 F and I'm like, Oh my bad. So I had to like grab like all my bags and walk to the back. It was pretty hilarious. It's like, yeah, I must've misread that there. You know, I thought it was one A. it's actually 50, 56 D I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, whatever you know what sorry okay hey, I, I needed to stretch out i had been you know my back was killing me from filming. yeah what is the flight over there i've never been to sweden i've been to finland but uh never sweden what's the flight yeah. over there how many how many hours it's probably pretty similar to that um i mean nowadays it's weird because you because of covid you can't fly direct from the states pretty much at all you have to constantly you have to always either stop in like some you know london or paris or amsterdam or something so it's like eight and a half hours, but I think if you go direct, I was like nine, nine and a half, something like that. Maybe oh, 10. Yeah, that's not that bad. Yeah, it's, no, no, that's it's very, bad. very similar to the flight to uh, Finland. Um, okay, so where does this thing end, man? Like where, where you, like, do you already have like a predetermined, like, because my thing is, is he's, he's just so young. Like, yeah, and, and yeah. It's, it's difficult. It would be difficult for me personally the experienced documentarian that I am. Um, just kidding. Uh, it would be difficult to be like, all right, this is like, 
the end point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I think Born to Fly. You know, Born to Fly is a pretty much completed film. Um, I don't like to say anything big because we're still a couple of days away from a certain big moment. Um, right. But right. dependent on a couple of factors, it's pretty much a completed film with minus like a few things. Okay, that isn't to say that I don't realize that this kid's really young, and I think there's more to the story. Um, especially since Sam is unable to compete. And I mm. think that their, their rivalry is still, uh, you know, it's, it's, un- that story's unfinished, you know, mm. well, you know, so born to fly will wrap and it's time to get it out. And I know there's a lot of people that have been asking like, when is it going to be released? And part of me just wants to be like, guys, I'm making a really important film to me and I'm not going to like release it early and it not be as good as it can be. <laughs> like, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to make the best damn movie I can make. I'm sorry. You know, right. I want to make a film that is still relevant in 15 years. I don't want a film that has a shelf life of like this Olympics and that's it. You know? So right. the reality is like, I'm going to take the time that it takes to finish it properly and tell a really good story. That's not just about pole vault, but it's about the whole story. Yada, yada, yada. You get it. Right. But with that said, I'm probably still going to keep filming Mondo because, like, I don't see why not. You know, I mean, it's just like I think there's more there, and I think I could do other things. And who knows if the film is good? Maybe people want to see more, and it may not be in the form of another film. It may be just in the form of some episodic stuff. I don't know. I just I, I see that it could. There's a lot of potential there. Right. Right. Okay. Cool. So so you know, don't listen to those people. You make your you know make your film, man. I we we're obviously we all want to see it obviously okay and the instagram the instagram doesn't help uh with the anticipation (laughs) so i'm sure it helps you yeah i should probably just stop posting (laughs) no (laughs) don't stop posting i am not suggesting that um but uh we 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 do want to see it but we do want to see the you know the product that you want to put out and uh you've done an incredible incredible job with just what we've seen and after talking to you today it really kind of pulled me in to be like okay this this guy's the real deal we're not we're not dealing with so this this is going to be a very important film you know like you said in for for all sports but but we we don't have very much you know in in our in the pole vaulting community for for as small as we are we really do appreciate the time that you've put into doing this four and a half years holy cow and then i don't know how long does it take to to kind of stamp it like boom it's done like after you're done filming yeah how long does it take i mean editing takes a long time i mean it's gonna be like you know definitely like probably five six months but the the reality is it's it's a it's a matter of it it, you know at some point it's out of my hands because if if i sell it to someone i mean i don't control when they release it you know what i mean if if if, let's just say a streamer picks it up if they say, Hey, we want to, we want to release it, you know, around the world championships. Like I don't have a choice. Like, okay. That they bought it, you know? Right. So right. like I can, I, you know, when I'm done with it, it's probably gonna be a lot, a lot sooner than when it's actually out. Because at that point I'm not planning on self-releasing it on YouTube. Let's put it that way. So it's at some <laughs> <Right>. point, <laughs> the, at some point the distributors get to choose and I get to sit that one, you know, back a little bit. Um, so, so the you move, know, I'll, I'll the move is to sell it to somebody who can, you yeah. know, kind of properly release it and, and, you know, do, do their thing get, with it. Yeah. Get it out to the biggest audience possible, you know, and, right. uh, 
and hopefully pay off some of the, the bills. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent, yeah. man. Well, you deserve yeah. it, man. And I, I really, I can't thank you enough. I know you're busy. Really appreciate your time. Um, and, uh, thanks for coming on one more jump podcast. Do you want to, uh, before we get off, do you want to like, kind of any parting words, like where, where can they follow you? You know, things like that. So, I mean, I think the best place is just follow the Instagram. That seems to be the place I post the most regularly. Um, mm-hmm. I started a TikTok, which boy, is that app something else? I do not like that app, but pole vault seems to be very popular on that app. So I was like, all right, well, you know, people you had like that it. one blow up though, didn't you? Like, yeah, like the first that. video, yeah, they, they really, they, they really in, they, they give you 2 million views almost. And then all your other videos get a couple thousand. You're like, oh, okay. So I see what you did there. You know, like my first video blew up. <laughs> right, right, but, right. Uh, anyway, I've been posting there too. Um, but the Instagram is the best place, obviously born to fly film.com. Like if any major developments happen, we'll go on like the website. Okay. Uh, um, and that's about it. Yeah, that's really it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, good luck to you and the rest of your filming. And, uh, this is the one more jump podcast signing off. <laughs>